0: When I was getting this podcast off the ground, we first started as the Wedgecast, evolved into the Map Action show. There was a lot of questions that we had, like, how do I record an episode? How do I get my show in all the different places like Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, Zencaster, all these different places. And yet it just seemed very, very complicated. But the simple thing for us as we began to navigate the waters is the answer to every single one of these questions, questions excuse me, was really simple. It's Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free. Yeah, free. And it's ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Making money. Okay. It's sweet. It's easy. It's not a big cheap plug on an ad, but it's just simple and easy to use. So for us, it's one of the best parts about it is we can do it entirely remote or in studio. So you can record. You've got that really, really high, you know, high in the sky person that you're going to have as a guest in your podcast. You got to do it remote. Anchor is easy to use. You got people who are willing to come to your studio, your house, your office, wherever you're recording it. Boom. Anchor. Love it. Simple, easy, simple and easy to use. So if you ever want to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. Join me in the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. Can't wait to hear your podcast. Edgecast listeners, what's up, what's up? I am doing an episode with Dr. Matt Dixon, who is the chief product and research officer for Tether, which is an Austin-based tech startup. And Matt's um, kind of scary intelligence. So he's this perfect combination of uh, a sales, intelligent sales tactic person And then he's got this whole research arm combination. And so one of the best parts about my job is that uh, I sort of get a bunch of free advice. And this was a guy who taught me more about sales tactics, how to get your product to not only in an organization, but to the right person and how to leverage your relationships within an organization. And he broke it down. Oh, it's just too good. It's too good. So. This one's really, really worth listening to, and you can definitely uh, glean some information, especially if you're somebody who is trying to understand organizational development and how to just get your product in front of the right person at a company. So, Matt, thanks for being a guest on the show. This was a blast. Tune in. Enjoy it. Well, Dr. Dixon, I know you mentioned for me to call you Matt, but I got to be a little bit more on the formal (laughs) side. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Uh, It's great to be here, Matt. Thanks for inviting me. So you're soaking
1: up the heat in uh, Washington DC as we speak, huh? I am. I have. It's uh, it's creeping up into the mid nineties today. We had we were part of that East Coast heat wave um, a couple of weeks ago, where it was. I mean, it was several days in a row of hundred plus uh, temperatures. Um, it was, it was pretty rough. And now it's a, it's a cool day today in DC. About should be about ninety five. So. A, a nice cool day. That's like exactly. as hot as it gets here in West Michigan.
0: <laughs> if you're gonna walk outside and you're gonna hit like the perfect temperature, what what's what's the what's the ideal situation for you?
1: You know, I've always loved you know when I go to uh, go to California and it's like you know mid 70s and it's beautifully su- you know sunny and it's a very low humidity. If I could, I always say to myself, if I could live in a place that was like that every single day, I would do it. And then I always move back to the East coast and, you know, like we deal with snow and we deal with heat waves and stuff like that. I guess I'm, I'm sort of a sucker for the seasons, but, um, but that, that would be kind of my ideal days, mid seventies, no humidity, bright sunshine.
0: Love that. Love that. That's awesome. So this is, uh, this is an awesome podcast. You have an amazing background in sales, AI data, you know, just, just driving a lot of forces towards that. But, you know, how did you get there ultimately? Like what, what's your story?
1: Yeah, it's a um, it's sort of a long and winding road, but I'll give you the I'll give you the short version here. Um, I went to uh, graduate school right out of college mainly for I think the the real reason uh, was that I didn't want to get a job, and so I had an opportunity to go get my PhD in political economy um, at the University of Pittsburgh. And I uh, is as for those of your listeners who um, who don't know this, usually when you go get a doctorate somewhere. Um, the university pays for your tuition, and they give you a stipend, and in in exchange for that, you're either a teaching assistant or a research assistant, so I was a research assistant for a number of professors uh, during the five years I spent there, Um, and I finished up my degree, but I kind of, I think I I went into it thinking I was going to, you know, head down the college professor career track, the academia career track, and I think I got about maybe 51% of the way through my coursework, and you know, fell victim to the sunken cost fallacy and decided to stick it out. But I think I'd kind of come to the conclusion that academia wasn't really for me. And so a lot of my research started to tilt more towards private sector stuff. In fact, if I had to do it over again, I probably would have gone. uh, And I, I I don't regret getting a PhD because it gives you a lot of research skills and Communication skills and and things that've proven to be really valuable to me. So I wouldn't, and I could always go and be a professor if I wanted to. So I wouldn't, I I wouldn't change that, but I probably would have gotten my degree in um, uh, some, you know, at a business school in some field of business like strategy or uh, or uh, something of that nature. So I, I started to really focus on kind of private sector issues in my doctoral research. And when I finished up, I went out to kind of hit the job market, and it was. It was interesting. So here's a guy who, you know, me, I had nine years of higher education, uh, college and grad school. And did no you work- get
0: your did you get your PhD right after your undergrad? I did. I did. That's yeah. pretty non-traditional, isn't it?
1: It is actually. Um, you know, uh, you know the my program at University of Pittsburgh was one of the few programs that actually admitted people straight in from undergrad with without a master's and without a work experience. So uh yeah, so it was a little bit atypical.
0: Do you think th- that you would have like uh, no, so jumping right from undergrad to mm-hmm. your your PhD, do you think going back and doing and having some experience in the meantime would have changed your basically research focus? I hate the should have, could have, would have questions, but uh, do you do you feel like it would have had any difference had you had a couple years experience and then gone
1: back and got your PhD? So I don't know. I I feel like I've really enjoyed being in the private sector and and working for a variety of cool companies and and doing some stuff with. Um, uh, in you know, out there with clients. and so I don't know if I had gone into the private sector if I ever would have gone back to get my phd. so i in that respect, I guess I'm glad it panned out the way it did because like I said, I think the the skill set is valuable and what I learned was very valuable and made some great friends uh, along the way uh, but I just I don't think I would have done it had I gone and gotten a job and then gotten married and had kids and you know then then life kind of takes over and and you never really go back and you hear that story all the time, right people just Always wanted to go back for their their master's or their doctorate, and they just never did because uh, life took over so kind of hard to say but but that's that's my sense but it was funny because when when I came out of when I came out of graduate school i um, I kind of was facing this prospect of you know lots of academic credentials I'd written like a four hundred page dissertation I'd done field research you know all over the world and um, I But I had no real work experience outside of working for a professor. So I wanted to go into consulting, but, you know, in most management consultancies and certainly um, uh, the the more prestigious ones do look for people with um, with some real substantive work experience in the private sector, either on the client side or on the professional services side, or they look for people with an MBA, and I didn't have either one. Um, and so the, a job came up as I was um, conducting my search with a company called uh, CEB, which was then called Corporate Executive Board. CEB was uh, sold to Gartner Group a couple of years ago. But I joined, and I was probably employee number 250 or 300 back in 99, and I started doing, basically, CEB is a for-profit think tank. So it's kind of perfect for people like me, uh, academic refugees, uh, people who wanted to to do re- apply their research skills to... Uh, problems that businesses face. And that was what really intrigued me. And so I joined up with them in 99, and I spent um, uh, 18 years there uh, before I left. And it was was a fascinating ride. And that's really what kind of got me into the whole world of sales and customer service and corporate strategy and uh, customer experience and these kinds of topics. Would you say
0: that you gravitate more towards uh, front-end sales focus or Backend support side of things, and I guess that's a very, very broad question. But would you rather be on the the customer facing, you know, uh, more traditional sales focus, or more backend research base?
1: It, it's uh, it's a great question. So I think um, I you know, as from a topical perspective, I love I just I love um, the parts of business where there's direct, um, you know, you're at the coal face with the customer. So whether that's sales uh, or marketing uh, or customer experience or customer care and customer support, like those those things really fascinate me. That's what I'm really interested in. I, when I started out at CEB, I was actually doing research for our uh, technology practice. So I was writing research for CIOs that was not my bag, you know, I was, yeah, anybody- I was about to say, that's
0: as, that's as, like, un, un, like, customer facing as it gets. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty
1: back, you know, in the, in the guts of the enterprise, and so things like, yeah, that's,
0: your, that's, like, your PhD round
1: two. Uh, yeah, yeah, so that was not, I, I just don't, it was funny, because I think, you know, at the time, I was, there were a lot of folks who really gravitated to the subject, and one of the things I learned from that experience, I spent about two years, um, in our technology practice before I moved um, uh, to a different part of the company. But I, I, first of all, I learned the craft there. So I learned the craft of for-profit research and learned how we do what, how we did what we did, and worked for some of the people who are best at it in the entire company. But I could tell that there were some folks who were really interested in tech, in writing research for CIOs and CTOs and chief architects and heads of information security. And I just never really got jazzed by that. And it, one of the lessons, the early lessons to me is. If you're not really psyched about what you're doing, you're like there's, it doesn't get you out of bed in the morning. And I know that's one of the topics we're gonna get to later. But for me, it wasn't until I landed in 2006. I I spent some time doing internal uh, product development and corporate strategy work at CEB. In around 2006 is when I moved into run the research practice that served heads of customer care, uh, heads of customer service around the world. It's about 300 companies at the time, um, and that was just fascinating to me. Just the whole you know the whole customer world and how companies interface with customers. That then a year later, I um, took over the sales practice, so I had the sales and the service piece, and I, you know, really focused on those two areas um, all the way up until when I left the company in uh, 2017. So, you know, that was, and I just found that endlessly interesting. Like, why do customers make the decisions they do? Why do companies uh, do what they do with customers? Um. what leads customers to be loyal or disloyal to companies, what leads a, a customer to buy or not to buy uh, from a salesperson. These are the things that really kind of uh, got me pretty jazzed because a lot of it's just basic human behavior stuff. But what we find is I think customer service and, and sales in particular are so rife with conventional wisdom, You know, um, things that have just assumptions that have been around for a really, really long time. And people have really hadn't stopped to test those or pressure test those assumptions with data, or by really taking a kind of a skeptical lens toward them. And so we, we, that's what we did at CEB. And and so we found, we unearthed a lot of kind of big ahas over the years around sales and service and the way that companies think customers want to engage with them. But when you study it with data, you find out not so much. So pretty fast. Yeah. Do you, have,
0: do you have an example or an assumption, I guess, that you potentially had that you walked into the way customers think that you realized pretty quickly was wrong, or maybe, maybe not speed, speed doesn't matter there, but, was there any assumption that you had walking into the ways customers interact or people interact that all of a sudden you realize, huh, that was the opposite of what I thought?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there probably the two. I think the two that um, we were best known for and and um, I think most closely associated with, which we, you know, we then wrote books on both of these these findings, which you know, spun off a whole decades worth of research in and of themselves. But the first one was um, this uh, this whole question of you know, how should you serve customers, you know, in a customer service interaction. So the conventional wisdom is really, look, you know, a customer is not going to pay you back with their loyalty. They're not going to say good things about you. They're not going to buy any more from you. They're not going to keep coming back if you simply do what they expect when things go wrong. So if they reach out to you, they call your 800 number, they go to your website. If all you do is the basics, um that's not good enough. And the conventional wisdom out there is that you got to delight your customer. you got to wow them. you've got to really surprise them in some some big kind of eye-opening way. And there, are, I mean, you go to the the bookstore, I don't know if there are any bookstores left, but if you can find one if you go to the bookstore, um, <laughs> yeah find the diamond in the rough there <laughs> right right, right. Um, or uh, go to go to the uh, you know customer experience or customer service section of Amazon and you'll find pages and pages and pages of books all about, how to wow and how to delight and how to exceed your customer's expectations. And what we found, the big aha was, we found we tested this with data and we looked at actual customer uh, service interactions. We found that customers whose expectations were exceeded, so those customers who were wowed, were actually no more loyal to to the companies they were doing business with than those whose expectations were simply met. And so the big surprise there was, you look, you spend a lot of blood, sweat and tears and candidly a lot of money as a company trying to delight your customers your customers don't pay you back with their loyalty, so that that raised a whole host of questions. Again, we we didn't expect to find that. Um, that was a big kind of head snapping, uh, you know, head snapper finding for our, our research team. But it spun up a whole years, uh, decades worth of research. We productized a lot of that, or put a lot of it into the book, The Effortless Experience. And then the other the other um, one that uh, that folks know about, and I think you and I, uh, this is kind of how we got connected, is in the world of sales. So you know, the conventional wisdom out there is that um, you know, people buy from people. And when you look at business to business salespeople, the best salespeople are the ones who build really deep customer relationships, um, you know, who, you know, find out what's keeping that customer up at night and they they address those needs. Um, they're, you know, uh, really good at needs diagnosis, really good at uh, being a Sherpa for the customer inside the company's, orga- you know, the, customer, uh, the supplier organization representing that customer, advocating for them, so on and so forth. And what we found in the research is that, um, the best salespeople actually uh, aren't uh, the best traditional relationship builders. They're what we call challengers. They're they're bringing new insights to the table. Honestly, insights that are kind of provocative and surprising to the customer that push the customer outside of his or her comfort zone. Um, they create they purposefully purposefully create tension during the sales experience instead of making tension go away like a relationship builder would. And so that was a huge surprise to us. And again, another another big finding that spun up um, a whole decade's worth of research. We we wrote two books on that, uh, The Challenger Sale and later The Challenger Customer. And I think that finding continues to surprise people out there in the market. And, you know, what we're saying is, and if you go back to both of these findings, in the case of Delight, what we're really saying here is that as a company, you got to delight your customers. But the place you want to do it is by creating a great brand and a, a great product that's really competitively priced. Uh, maybe a great store experience if you're a retailer, whatever. But when things go wrong, when the customer reaches out for you to help uh, for help, you don't need to delight them. You just need to make the service interaction effortless and easier than the customer expects. And then on the challenger side, uh, the lesson there is not um, that relationships don't matter to sales. They they matter crucially. In fact, challengers we found were the second best relationship builders of the five profiles we found in, in that uh, study, the five profiles of salespeople. But the thing is that it speaks to the nature of the relationship that today's customers out there doing all this research online, they're kind of empowered, um, in some cases, uh, uh, you know, hamstrung by all the information that they have, and that the best salespeople actually build a relationship based on insight and based on uh, new ideas uh, for the customer, not just based on doing whatever the customer wants uh, and being kind of reactive and, and um, uh, responsive in that way. So, so those, again yeah, two big Two big ahas, probably, again, the two that we're best known for uh, during, during my time, at least, at CEB. And I'm sure the team there, um, who is now part of Gardner Group, is going to continue to pump out some pretty, uh, pretty surprising stuff uh, moving forward. So I, I, I got to dive into that a little bit because I'm on
0: the sales of side of things. And also what, I, what it makes my mind go towards is, have you read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? Of course, yeah, yeah so one of the biggest things in there is basically like never tell people they're wrong, which I find so very true. The moment you walk in the door and tell somebody you're wrong, no matter what you're bringing, presenting, how you're doing it, you instantly create a level of skepticism or the person doesn't even want to hear. So how would you recommend somebody who, because the funny thing is there's also often a lot of times that people are wrong. And so how do you balance, you know, the ability to be a salesperson and challenge without necessarily walking in the door and saying, Hey, here's everything you're doing wrong, here's our solution, but how do you provide that level of insight that all of a sudden makes the person feel more comfortable with you rather than turned off or uh, off put by you?
1: Well, I I think there's, there are a couple of reasons that I'd say there's, if I took a step back, there are three reasons that companies kind of struggle with um, uh, going down this challenger path. I think the first one is that challenging uh, the customer is as much about an individual salesperson's skill and their ability to do it, and we'll talk about that in a moment, because uh, that goes right to your question, as it is about organizational capability. And what I mean by that is that it's really the job of the company to put insights into the hands of their salespeople so that they can go forth and challenge. So we always say, and I'd say kind of tongue-in-cheek, but if you've got nothing insightful to share, you're not actually challenging, you're just actually annoying. Because uh, all you're doing is telling the customer, <laughs> they're wrong, yep. right? doing it wrong, but you've got no nothing better to point to. I you're basically spec- just speaking to be heard, sort of thing. Exactly, exactly. So, yes, yeah, very well put. Um, I think the other reason that, that um, uh, companies struggle is uh, that these are really tricky skills to master, and the way they get mastered is not typically in the classroom. Um, you can get exposed a salesperson to these concepts in, in classroom training, but the way you really get good at it is by one, through one-on-one coaching with your sales manager. And the reality is that most sales managers are really awful coaches. And so that's kind of failure path number two. The third one is what you articulated, which is kind of people confusing, uh, challenging with, uh, being a jerk, which is, I would call it the sixth profile, <laughs> but the, uh, Very, so, yep, yep, yep. challenging is, um. Is, about, uh, is not about being rude, aggressive, obnoxious, or, or just kind of poking the customer in the eye. It's about being empathetic, being respectful. Um, in, the, in other words, the way that you challenge is super important. And I would tell you that's even more important in certain organizations. I think as you and I both know, some companies are more open to being challenged than others, and some executives and some leaders more open to that than others. And in some cultures, right, in company culture and, you know, geographic cultures, if you will, you know, if you talk about challenging in Asia, obviously, it's gonna be very, very different from challenging in New York City. Um, and so what we always say is, you know, when you when it comes to positioning a challenge in a uh, non-confrontational way, in a way that shows the customer there's a better way, but doesn't tell them they're doing it wrong, the way that you challenge is absolutely important. And so another, uh, another piece of... Um, uh, guidance I often offer is that you know the best way to get somebody to um, or to disagree with somebody is to actually agree with them first. And so I'll, I'll give you a quick example. We talk about this one in the book, and I often present the story. But uh, Granger is uh, one of those companies that really uh, charted the way in this whole insight selling or challenger mode of selling. In fact, they taught us much of. Um, You know what a challenger conversation sounds like because they were they were already headed down this path. There's a woman named Deb Oler uh, at Granger. Um, She runs North America for them, and at the time she was the head of sales. And so she had she had kind of picked up on this idea that you know we really need to change the nature of the sales conversation. We need to bring better new ideas to our customers because that's really what they're looking for. Um, They want to be challenged, even if they wouldn't necessarily put it that way. But what the way they often will um, have conversations, at least uh, today, the way they'll have their conversations with customers is they'll walk in and basically they're telling the customer that they're wasting a lot of money on unplanned purchases. What in their industry is called tail spend. So it's, you know, Granger does maintenance repair operations. They have big contracts with customers and, and uh, typically there are some items in an M- in the MRO business that you've got to buy outside of contract. And when you buy things outside of contract, it can get really expensive because these are the kind of rare one-off purchases. You know, the, the air can air handler that serves um, the, you know, The top, the the boardroom on the top floor of the building, and there's only one in the entire facility, and it's not covered by your MRO contract with your current supplier. So, you got to spend a lot of time, energy, and money finding a supplier who has it, and then you don't get a discount. You got to pay for expedited shipping. You don't get a contract. You don't get installation. Like, you pay through the nose for this stuff. And so, Granger, uh, part of their sales pitch, they go in and they try to uh, confront, if you will, the customer with the insight. Which is not like, let's say you are a, you're a facilities manager and I'm a Granger salesperson, I'd walk in and say, Matt, you know, our research at Granger shows that most facilities spend almost 50% of their annual MRO spend on things that fall outside of contract. so um, on tail spend items, on those one-off, you know, um, incidental kind of uh, out-of-contract purchases. Almost 50% of their annual spend goes to that stuff. And so, if you are a facilities manager, what would you understand in that moment is, this is not actually about you or your facility or your company. It's about facilities management in general. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to accept it at face value. In fact, you're probably going to push back and say, ah, that seems really steep to me. And I say, okay, Matt, let me, let me walk you through some of the research we've done at Granger. And then I show you a simple breakdown of how when you buy stuff out of contract, it gets really expensive really fast. And then you say, okay, well, I get it. So maybe it is almost 50% of spend, but but you got to understand that at Baxter Co. we run a really tight ship, and there's no way that that we spend 50% of our our annual spend on out of contract purchases. And so then I offer to do a uh, diagnostic and say, you know, I'd love to run your purchasing data through our model so that I can show you what you um, where you're spending efficiently and where you're spending inefficiently. So again, it's not telling you you're doing it wrong, but offering uh, some insight. That is surprising, right? That there's a much bigger cost leakage out there potentially than you than you're probably um, admitting to or you realize. And then secondly, offering to do a diagnostic so that we can actually show you whether that insight applies to your business. But you know, one of the I, I, the last thing I would say is, oftentimes I find when people put a surprising or counterintuitive insight on the table, like that that Granger insight that you're wasting half of your money on unplanned purchases, you know, people will push back right away and they'll say, well, you know you know, that that wouldn't apply to our company. Let explain our business to you and what's important to us. And what you find is your relationship builder the reps will, because they're not looking to push the customer outside their comfort zone, they'll take that provocative insight, stick it back in their briefcase and say, okay, great. You know, Matt, tell me more about your company and what's keeping you up at night. The, the challenger rep is going to hold their ground though. Again, they're going to be respectful. Um, they're going to be uh, empathetic, but they're going to say, uh, you know, Matt, I totally understand. And, and I also understand we're not going to do business together unless I get to ask a lot of questions and get to really understand your company and what's important to you. But I know we've also got uh, half an hour together or 45 minutes together. And I got to tell you other uh, purchasing or facilities managers, just like you and companies, just like yours, I found this data to be pretty eye-opening. So with your permission, can I show you a few slides? I'd love to make it a dialogue because obviously I want to understand if we can square that circle. And if it does actually apply to your business, if it doesn't, uh, happy to give you some time back, shake hands and, and uh, leave as friends. But but again, you can see that what I'm doing is acknowledging your, your, your kind of knee jerk reaction that I, I reject your your insight and I'm, I'm deferring, right? We'll get to well, that. Well,
0: you're also, you're also inviting them to accept the fact that what they've done might have been wrong or they might have missed a few things or, you know, or sure. what, what, but you're inviting them into that and you're, you're basically empowering them to go through that experience, which I think is just as valuable too.
1: And it's, it's interesting because I, I think um, in the best sale, the very best salespeople, I think you'll find in, And I've heard salespeople say this for years, long before you wrote this book that, you know, um, if I can get the customer to think that this is their idea, I've won, right?
0: So, oh my goodness. If so. you can, if you can allow them to feel like they have the aha moment when it's sort of you guiding them to that point, that is a done deal. Sign the papers. I mean, it's, it's a big,
1: I, I totally agree with that. Totally. And the the other thing I would add is, and this is, one of the things we found with the second book, The Challenger Customer, what we found is who you challenge matters critically. And they're they're actually, you know, customer stakeholders. We found I'm not gonna I won't go through all of them here, but we found seven different types of customer stakeholders. We loosely categorized them into um, three types of stakeholders. We found um, what we call talkers. or three loosely categorized these seven stakeholders into three buckets. We got talkers. These are people who are willing to, you know give you information tell you how purchase decisions get made introduce you to their colleagues but they're not really going to stick your necks out for uh, uh for you to get the deal done or, or advocate for your idea or your solution you got mobilizers mobilizers are the ones who are really motivated by by big ideas and they will push their chips in the middle of the table and stick their necks out uh, to get uh, to get a deal done and to get your solution um, uh, purchased, and then you got blockers. Blockers are kind of the status quo, stay the course, folks. You know, even if you're interested in meeting with them, they're probably not interested in meeting with you. And what we found is uh, challengers actually target uh, relationship builders will target those talkers because they're they're interested in friendly people just like them, and they'll pump them for information all day long. But then they're surprised to see you know that the deal kind of just gets stuck and it doesn't go anywhere. Challengers really look for those mobilizers, and the way you think about them is. They're sort of they're sort of like the challenger's twin on the customer side. That's why we end up calling the book the challenger customer. But you got to find that person who is open uh, to being challenged and receptive to those new ideas. And that's not everybody. And so I think to your point earlier, you know, there if you you come out even if you did the right way, empathetically, respectfully, professionally, you made the you you tried to do everything you could by inviting them into the process, as you said. You try to make them feel like it's their idea. There's still going to be some people who just don't want to be challenged. Um, and there are going to be people who are all about being challenged, right? Who are looking for those big ideas that are going to change the course of their own business. And so a lot of what we found makes Challengers successful is they're really good at picking the people to sell to uh, as well. It's So it's
0: fascinating you say this. So I've, uh, I've, I've been running a tech startup uh, for the last four years. And the demographic of people I typically interact with are HR managers, talent acquisition, Um, the space. And so I've had the luxury over the last four years of meeting with, it's got to be north of a thousand different people in this space. And I've had like, just the idea of, okay, objectively, who am I sitting across from? Are they receptive to it or not? Because at first I walked in the door saying, well, I'm a young guy. I'm a tech startup founder. Like you want to see me win. And then I realized like most people don't care. And then there were some people who were saying, okay, we want to help you however we can. And then there were some people who were no matter what, how well, no matter what I did throughout the experience, they just had, they, they weren't having it at all. And just learning that experience. And I, I, I'm not saying I'm good at it or an expert at it now, but just being able to understand that if you have a board meeting and you've got eight people sitting in the room, one or two of them, you know, those are the people that are going to be nodding their head the whole time. They're going to be excited. They're going to be thrilled, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you've got the sale closed. You've got one or two people who are sitting there, who are really practically thinking about it. And if you can get, uh, that's the mobilizer, I think. Those are the people who are then going to turn around and say, we're going to get this done. This is how it's going to have to go. And he's, these are the roadblocks. The gatekeepers, we're going to have to buy lunch to get there sort of deal. Yeah. And that's that's fascinating to actually hear that into defined concepts. Because I've, uh, again, learned, seen, and and dealt with the headaches of like, everything went so well, why didn't we close sort of thing. I yeah,
1: it, <laughs> it, it, I, I often will tell salespeople, you know, if you want to, test this with your, uh, with your own data, go back and think about, you know, your last year's worth of, uh, pursuits or deals, um, ones where you, you actually, um, you know, can say with some certainty, it's, it's either, either bought it's never going to happen or, but there's, some, there's some closure there. And I think what people, when they go back and they look at those deals that they either lost or ones where they just kind of fizzled out, they got stuck, Customers stopped returning their calls you know, um, it just, you know, they just kind of went into a black hole, if you will. Um, what many salespeople come back and tell me is, I think that the ones that I either got to no know, or they end up in no decision land, and they just kind of black holed on me. Those are, uh, those are ones where I wasn't in with a mobilizer, right? I was, I would hitched my wagon to a talker or to somebody else. And at the end of the day, they just, they weren't that into my idea or my solution, certainly not enough to jeopardize their own you know standing in the organization and stick their necks out. So you know it doesn't mean those people can't be useful to you because they they can be great uh, in terms of getting to know the organization and getting um lots of uh, lots of um, uh, detail on the organization and you know how decisions are going to get made and who holds the purse strings and you know who do I really need to to get to know and and what are some of the issues you're grappling with and th- all these things are are really important, but they're not um Uh, they're not actually uh, the people who are going to get the deal done for you. So you got to still have to find your mobilizer. Even if you find a great talker who's giving you all this information, you still got to do the work, the hard work of finding a mobilizer because that's the person you're going to hit your wagon to is going to bring you across the finish line. So
0: we're going to, we're going to transition a little bit. It's, it's, we might have to uh, schedule a podcast round two, round three, round four (laughs) because this, this is like one of my favorite, like what you're talking about is I, it gets me pretty geeked and fired up. That's cool stuff. Um, (laughs) So from a guy who came from a background of very research, high intense focus, the, the data side of things, transitioning that into sales context, was there a season, this is more on the personal side than the business side, but obviously they overlap. Was there a season of life that got you to the point where you were thinking just a very challenging season or you're running into way too many roadblocks or just just at a, at a tough place in life that ultimately maybe prevented where'd you want to go? And, and I guess ultimately the question here is, how did you get out of that?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think those, I think everybody probably goes through uh, many of those is my suspicion. And, you know, but if I think about the, um, the couple where, you know, is a real, <laughs> but I think about the, um, I'm a big uh, cycling fan. And so when I watch the, um, they show the, uh, the, the, the elevation profile of like a tour de France stage and there are little, little hills here and there, and then there are a couple of really big mountains. You know, And so if I think about the really big mountains in my professional life um, I think the for me, you know, I I spent um, well I was at C V for 18 years and it was an, a phenomenal organization to be a part of. Um, I think towards the end it got tough because we we sort of I, I felt like I'd learned a lot about the um, about the business and I wanted to wanted to drive change, but we'd become such a big organization. And so that was uh, that was a tough, you know, towards the end of my time there, a tough couple of years to see, you know, and I think we've all experienced this as professionals where you feel like you you know what could be a different direction or could be right answer, but you just, it's hard to make, it's hard to drive change, right? In a large organization, we were almost a billion dollars in revenue at the time. And so that taught me that, hey, you know, go kind of put your money where your mouth is and, and you should go try to do something that's earlier stage where you can have more impact on the direction of the business. And so that's what I'm doing now. And that's been super gratifying, but it's also been very eye opening because you find out that, a lot of these things I thought were right when <laughs> I thought I knew it all actually it turns out they don't work. So, you know, it's, um, it can be pretty, and I, I know you, uh, you probably experienced this as well running a tech startup yourself, but it's, it's hugely empowering, but um, it can be a bit of a roller coaster, which I always tell people is, is great. As long as you like roller coasters and as long as you're riding that roller coaster with some people you enjoy, um, enjoy spending time with uh, and going through ups and downs with. So I think I, I would say there was that. I think my first my first move after um, I left CEB was into management consulting and that was, you know, great, um, great organization with a great group of people. But I think i realized like, that's not really where my heart is. My, I'm much more of a data guy and much more interested in, in continuing to study, um, you know, customer experience, sales, customer care. And so uh, my next, my next job after that, I was looking for what is an early stage venture doing something uh, in this space that's throwing off a lot of data where we can um, we can continue to observe what you know what's going on in the customer world. What are what are best companies doing? And that's kind of what I found now with my my current organization. But but yeah, I mean that's that's I think uh, those are a couple of the moments for me where I felt like ah, uh, it's you know maybe I hit the snooze button. It's a little tough to get out of. There. Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. You got to pound an extra cup of coffee or something in the morning. <laughs> right. um, so i want to give you a little bit of space uh you 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 spoke a little bit about your current organization but what is it you know feel free to talk a little bit about that because i'd love to hear more
1: yeah sure so i work for i run um chief product and research officer i run uh uh the the product uh, side of the business for a company called tether uh, which is spelled t-e-t-h-r we are a um uh, an ai based or ai powered voice analytics company so what does that mean? what What it means is that we um, use advanced technology like AI and machine learning to help companies uh, mine their recorded phone calls, chat interactions, um, other, if you will, um, uh, conversational data between companies and their customers to find insights. And so what's I think what's really interesting is for me a couple of things. One is I feel like we are on the cusp of something really interesting in the world what what our technology does is is effectively, in, for many organizations is obviates the need to send customer surveys. So if you think about the last call center interaction you had, the last service interaction, you probably got an email or you got a prompt on the you know on the on the phone system saying, hey, would you like to fill out a could you fill out a survey after the phone call and tell us what you thought or or what have you? or maybe there was you went to a website there was a pop-up asking you to give your feedback. Um, the response rate on those is is plummeting for most organizations. and the, the problem is, of course, that, we're we're really, as customers, we're really over-surveyed and the companies out there really use surveys to answer every make and manner of question imaginable. And the net effect of that is more and more surveys that get fewer and fewer responses uh, from customers. And so what we help companies do is mine the interactions they have. So think about a call center interaction. Let's say you call a company, you spend, you know, 15 minutes on the phone troubleshooting an issue, you get off the phone and the company then sends you a survey saying, hey, Matt, how was, how was the interaction? What'd you think of the rep? Would you be likely to recommend our company? Would you, you know, all these all these questions are looking for feedback, what could we do better? It, what if instead of asking a customer to fill out a survey, you could just mine the phone call that, by the way, you just recorded, and uh, what if you could transcribe that data, use AI and machine learning to mine that data for insights to find out things about uh, the customer experience, things about the sales interaction with the rep, whoever it was who sold them the product, Find out about the store experience if you're a retailer. Find out about how the product is performing, about pricing, about you know competitors out there uh, who who pose a threat to your business, uh, how your marketing campaigns are are working. And what we find is that these this data is just a goldmine of insight uh, for companies. So it's a fascinating place, I think. One because we're on the cusp of this, I think, a huge secular shift in in the in the world of of understanding customers and customer experience, where companies are are going to stop. Pretty soon, relying so heavily on traditional surveys and start to use alternate methods of customer listening, if you will. And then the well, second, yeah, oh, oh, sorry, sorry keep
0: no 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 keep going keep going. Second so, thing I was going to say is it throws
1: off tons of data. So we've we've um, we've collected data on you know hundreds of millions of customer uh, interactions uh, to date, uh, and that just is a goldmine of of insight for me as a researcher. So challenge the challenger sale, the effortless experience. You know, we wrote those studies using surveys and and uh, and panel uh, panel data. And so this is raw, unstructured customer conversations, sales conversations, service conversations, you name it, um, that are just waiting for somebody to come in and mine them to find out, you know, what do challengers say and do? What does that actually sound like? Um, What is an effortless experience? How does that actually come across to a customer? How do you know when you got it right? How do you know when you got it wrong? And so I I think it's a, for me, it's like being a kid in a candy store uh, as a sort of research geek, so.
0: So, and yeah, sorry, sorry to cut you off on that. What it, what what that all made me think a lot about is I think it was either Delta or Southwest put out a massive survey of requ- basically asking if people would rather have an automated person talk on the phone or a human person talk on the phone. An overwhelming number of people would prefer to have a person talk on the phone, but yet what they actually found was with with uh, basically a whole set of customer service calls and everything like that is the uh the automated bot chat person talking them through on the phone got them to the desired result much faster and much more effectively than most people did. And so it goes back to what you talked about a long time ago uh, was that you found pretty quickly that like people aren't always as rational with their, Hey, this is what I want, but most people don't actually know what they want. And so I would imagine that that would just be the most fascinating piece of information to figure out that all these people on surveys Think that this is what they want through the experience, but in in all reality, it's probably not.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, and you know that's a that's a great uh, that's a great example. So, you know, we um, we found in our own research when we dug into the kind of customer experiences exactly um, uh, in line with with what you, you know the the research you cited from. I think you mentioned it was Delta or Southwest. When you go and ask customers what they want, they'll tell you like, "I want to talk to a person." But if you told them that it was there was actually an easier way and a faster way to get their answer, so for instance, talk to this bot first, and it'll direct you to the right place in the organization, or it might even be able to automate the response. Customers will go with the easier option if you guide them in that direction. So um, again, we we all have um, what we call um, uh, big P preferences and small P preferences. So the the small P preferences is your desire to do like uh, to send an email, or in the case of customer service, send an email or um or talk to a human being or what have you your big p preference though is fast and easy re- resolution and so the company if they can guide you to the faster and easier uh, path you will subordinate and we found this in our research you will subordinate that option that you said you preferred for the one that you may not have preferred at face value or if given the choice but when the company added, by the way, this one that you said was your, not your preference, it's actually a lot easier and it's faster. You're suddenly, like your desire to talk to a live person suddenly goes to second place. And your, your first place choice is, um, is your desire for fast and easy resolution, which might be talking to an automated system. So,
0: Yeah, love that. So my absolute favorite question in the world is asking uh, people doing amazing things with their career, have cool backstories. Ultimately, you know what, what is it today that gets you out of bed the morning the most?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that is a great question. I, I, so it's a a few things. Um, So one, one is my kids, because they, um, they get up pretty early. So the, uh, so (laughs) So whether, whether you like it or not, you're getting out of bed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm up anyway. So um, yeah, there's not a lot of snooze buttoning happening. Um, But I would say, um, kind of going back to what I said before, I love, uh, kind of, I love what we're doing uh, at Tether, the, the opportunity to really change you know, change the world, or, or as um, uh, one of my uh, colleagues at CEB once said, put a dent in the universe. So I think there's a there's a really exciting opportunity out here to just change the way that companies um, listen to their customers and to help them do it more effectively. Because if that can happen, then I see a world in which companies aren't such a pain to do business with. As you know, for us, whether we're talking about B2B or B2C, right? The number of frustrating interactions we've had with companies, the number of frustrating interactions we've had. With our suppliers, um, for those of us like yourself who are who are business owners or business leaders, um, you know it's it's a pain, right? And and I think a lot of this comes down to the fact that companies aren't very good at trying at understanding what their customers really want and need, um, and there are better ways to do it. And so I think we're 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 doing important work out here. I may not go so far as to call it God's work, but I think it's really important work, and I think it's going to make a big difference. And then the other thing is just I I always believe, and this was true when I was at CEB. It's True today, um, it's almost more important who you're doing it with. So, I think you could do some something that's maybe not as uh as interesting or may not be as interesting to me, but if I were doing it with some awesome people, some people I love working with day in and day out, that's going to make a big difference. And so, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be surrounded by some really talented uh colleagues, uh, some former co workers who joined me from CEB, and uh, in, as well, a lot of new people who I've met um at Tether, and it's just it's a small organization. We're about 50 people, uh, but it's a really, really talented group who teach me a lot every day and just, they make work fun. And so uh, that's kind of, other than my kids, those are the things that are getting me out of
0: bed. So I love that. That's, that's, that's powerful when you can find a place where you're actually doing what you love and you're also doing it with sweet people too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Love that. Well, Dr. Dixon, is there anything else you want to leave the audience with?
1: Uh, you know, uh, the only, I guess the only thing I'd say is, you know, if, um, for any of your listeners, if you're, if you're interested in learning more about what we do at Tether, then, um, please uh, pay us a visit. We're at dot uh, tether.com. That's again, T E T H R. Uh, we leave out the second E because we're a startup and that's what startups do. Um, but uh, we're working with some really big <laughs> Yeah, companies. domain names are not as cheap as people think. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, um, You know, we're working with a lot of big, really big companies, um, as well as some middle market companies right now, helping them, you know, take their existing data and do a better job listening to their customers. So love to talk to um, any of your listeners who'd be interested in learning more. And then, of course, there are lots of people who have questions about Challenger and um, uh, effortless experience and some of that work. Uh, Open invitation to all of your listeners to shoot me a LinkedIn invitation. Uh, If you have any questions or or thoughts about any of that work, I'd I'd love to engage with you uh, separately and um, uh, feel free to keep the dialogue open. Love that. Thank
0: you so much for being a guest. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt.